Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. Brett King is no stranger to the podcast world. He's the host of Breaking Banks and the author of many books, and he has spent much of his career delving into technology and innovation that is disrupting the financial services industry. Now in his new book, The Rise of Technosocialism, Brett is stepping outside the financial services sector to look at how AI, climate change, and rising inequality are driving global transformation. Brett makes the case that harnessed responsibly, technology can lead us to a brave new world. Brett, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. It's great to be here. It's it's like um, we've we've both done so many of these things from different sides of the microphone, but this is this is um, a a wonderful opportunity. I'm very grateful for it, but it's it's just great to be talking to you about this topic because I know we're both going to get so much out of it. I agree, and I feel like oh my god, it's finally happened. I've gotten the man on my show. So thank you for joining me. I'm really excited. Um, there are so many things to talk about with you, Brett. But obviously, I want to start with your new book. Uh, it's called The Rise of Technosocialism, How Inequality, AI, and Climate Will Usher in a New World. Wow. <laughs> you know, there are about 5,000 important things we could be talking about in this book. Absolutely. Um, I had the opportunity to read an advanced copy. It's incredibly thought-provoking. But let's start from the very beginning. What is technosocialism? So to frame frame it, what we actually look at is four potential futures for humanity in the book. We look at the problem of inequality and economic uncertainty, which is rife today, and we look at how we, you know, how humanity might get through this next period, particularly with artificial intelligence and climate change, um, and what the what the ultimate outcome would be. Um, from an economics perspective, socio-political, socio-economic sort of organizing principles. And so it's a little like a scenario planning kind of approach. For, yeah, scenario planning, forecasting. Um, and we mapped out four potential futures. Um, so the axes of that were inclusive um, collective economies uh, versus um, exclusionary individualistic economies. Um, and then chaotic versus uh, planned futures, right? And so they're the four quadrants, um, which ended up as sort of rejection of science and technology because of its effect, effect on labor uh, participation and uh, you know other other issues. So that we call that the ladder stand uh, scenario in the top left hand corner, and then the bottom left we talk about failed states where we just waited too long to fix problems like climate, and then on the um, planned side, um, the exclusionary um, uh, scenario, which is we call neo feudalism, and then techno socialism and of those four scenarios that are likely, um, we argue that techno-socialism is the most optimistic and optimal outcome for humanity as a whole. And so that essentially, it's it's not a political movement as such, as, as more it is a collective movement for the economic benefit of all humans. Okay. So if it's not political, 
and it's not economic. Is this more of a philosophy? Absolutely. Bang on. So it is. It's really, it's a philosophical document ultimately is what is the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? Um, What is the optimal form of humanity? If we're here on the planet, then what should we be doing? And ultimately, you know, what role does the economy, work and these other things play in the future existence of of humanity? Um, And just sort of one simple sort of measure of this as an example. We talk about economic realignment, the purpose of the economy being better aligned with the needs of humans today. And so when you look at economists over the last 300 years, you know, from Adam, um, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations back in 1776, um, you know, through to um, Friedman or Thomas Piketty or whatever, economists generally measure the activity of an economy in with things like GDP growth, market uh, returns, um, you know, uh, market value, stock market, stock market prices, uh, trade balances and surpluses, you know, those sort of things. Um, and by that measure, the US is unarguably the most successful economy the world has seen to date. But if you look at what an economy should achieve for its citizens, namely providing for the basic needs of its citizens, making its citizens happy and healthy, particularly during the pandemic with the massive inequality spike that we've seen, you could argue that the US has been a demonstrable failure as an economy. So as inequality becomes more of an issue and as artificial intelligence um, unhinges labour participation from basic supply and demand economics, increasingly we're going to be asking the question, what should the economy do for its citizens? And that sort of comes back to very a very philosophical question about why are we all here and what's the purpose of all of this? So maybe instead of a futurist, I should be calling you a philosopher. A philosopher futurist, perhaps, in the style of sort of the <laughs> philosopher's ki- philosopher king of uh, Socrates and Plato. But yeah, I, I don't mind that. Yes, exactly. So in the book, you write, the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. That's a really big statement. And you just briefly touched on some of the drivers of why you think that's so. I want to go a little bit deeper um, into those because there's four drivers in particular that you call out in the book, Um, inequality, pandemics, AI, and climate change. And I wonder if you could just spend a little bit of time on each one of those, helping us um, understand the trends you've seen and why that makes you think uh, that those are going to drive us to um, to such a level of disruption. So as you and I discussed offline, Jen, you know, I started writing this book long before the pandemic. Um, you know, it's been many years of research. And what led me to this was I, I wrote a book in 2015 called Augmented, Life in the Smart Lane. And one of the things that I, you know, was sort of left wanting at the end of that book was how society would adapt as a whole, how our economics, our politics, uh, and so forth would would have to adapt to highly automated societies, which is clearly the intent of of where we see things going. 
But in parallel with that growth that we're seeing, we're also seeing an increase in economic uncertainty. So one of the things we started out the book was, was you know, the loss of the American dream, the fact that um, you know, in, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, you know, um, the, the, the great hope was that if you worked hard, you'd provide a better future for, for your children. That's no longer guaranteed in, in today's system, primarily because of problems like inequality. But then the pandemic hit and the pandemic gave us so much material for this topic because we saw the pandemic accentuate inequality. We certainly saw people, um, you know, have uh, you know, large portions of the population suffer economic uncertainty. Um, and then when you realise what AI is going to do to employment and then you see the impact of climate change with food scarcity, uh, eco-refugees, displacement of large groups of populations, the potential for that economic uncertainty is incredibly high. So how do we resolve that? Well, you can't resolve it in the current system because the current system has essentially created this economic uncertainty. So then, you know, what are the levers that we can introduce into capitalism, for example, that give us better controls over that outcomes? And again, you know, what are some of the economic principles at play? Those were the questions that really um, we started out the book trying to find an answer for. But there was some really interesting early signals that we started to get in terms of data that led us to a sort of this understanding of why economic is so critical for social cohesion, right? So economic certainty is so critical for social cohesion. Um, and that is that if you look at the number of protests we've seen globally in the last 20 years, we've seen an increase of 200% in terms of the number of protest events from, from the, you know, the average of the 20th century. But we've seen a 1,000% increase in the participation in those protests. So when you look at um, you know Bernie Sanders, uh, AOC, and and you know sort of the 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 modern socialist movement there, and you look at the populist movement, Trump, um, you know Johnson, Bolsonaro, and so forth, these are all indicators of economic uncertainty. The people are, are looking for a solution, a way out of this, and that's really what we wanted to tackle in the body of the book. Should we read this book as an indictment of capitalism? Well, you know, I think um, capitalism was the best system we could come up with at the time. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best system we're ever going to have. The, the line of logic or reasoning I use in the book or that Richard and I use in the book in respect to this is, um, you know, if you look 10,000 years in the future, do we expect that as a society, we will have made advancements in terms of the way economics work and capitalism works and so forth? And the answer is obviously yes. We, we would look to improve on the system. And so if that's the case, why do we have to wait 10,000 years? Um, and so the, if we look at some of the core flaws in the system today, you know, one example we use in the book is air quality. Now, even if you believe you don't believe in climate change being man-made, there's very little arguments that the climate is changing. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter when you come down to it whether it's man-made or not in terms of outcomes. But if we just take the issue of air quality, 
You know, since the 1970s and 1980s, pollution has been a significant problem. Eight to 10 million people die every year as a result of poor air quality. We obviously have problems with water quality, you know, in some parts, in, in large parts of the world as well, even here in the, in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we examine that and we say, well, why haven't we fixed air quality? We have the technology to fix it. We could have shifted to more renewable forms of transportation and energy production, for example, many years ago. But let's think back in the 1980s, the largest companies in the world were fossil fuel companies. And so the market was rewarding those fossil fuel companies for putting carbon and pollution into the atmosphere because it was generating returns. And so can we expect that same system that has rewarded behavior that's counterproductive for humans to then reverse itself. Well, the arguments for capitalists are, well, as soon as energy production costs come down and so forth, then the market will right itself. But in the meantime, 10 million people are dying every year because of this problem. And so this is a problem of prioritization. Now, in the past, we didn't have all of the options that we have today in respect to energy production and transportation, but we do now. So the question is, why aren't we rapidly retooling the planet to to improve air quality? And it comes back to the market is not incentivized to do that. And so that's the core problem with capitalism right now. It doesn't have a social conscience. It is uh, purely driven by these market forces. And when it comes to things like inequality and you know, making sure people are happy and healthy. Um, that's really an after effect that's, uh, that's sort of argued by, by economists, right? It's really, in many ways, a collective action problem because Correct. the market rewards individual success uh, as proxied by uh, financial returns. Um, so, it, uh, you know, it, it, it feels like it all comes back to what gets measured gets managed or exactly. you know, what gets incentivized gets done. Well, it comes back to, you know, again, um, you know, we, we philosophize in the book. I know I talk about Aristotle saying that the purpose of humanity is for humanity to thrive. The problem with the current system is that a very small percentage of humanity thrives based on the current system. So it's not, it's not optimal for all humans. It's optimal for a very small group of humans. And increasingly, the group of humans that get the optimal benefit from the economy is shrinking. And so, um, and it's going to get worse with the uh, implications of AI and climate. So that's really at the core of this. The economy is not working for everybody. And that's what we have to adjust. And uh, tweaking the system um, in respect to capitalism so it achieves that is really critical for the next 30 years. So I think a big part of the way you and your co-author think we're going to get there is with AI. Right. Um, That AI is going to change life as we know it so significantly that we're going to be able to contemplate moving from a more individualistic society to a more cooperative or collaborative society. I I, I will admit I'm slightly skeptical about that. Uh, So talk to me a little bit about now um, AI and uh, why you see that as such a uh, driver of, at the end of the day, what is culture, the culture of this uh, country and and, uh, in particular. Well, the great thing about High, highly automated societies, which AI gives us a potential for, is that it is um, 
economically very right wing because we can reduce the size of government, we can reduce the cost of government and improve resource allocation. And in doing Give so- Give an example of that. Right? How, okay. how do we shrink government with AI? So let's take, for example, one, uh, one example we use for the US system is healthcare in, in, in the book. So we demonstrate that by the year 2040, that we can reduce the total cost of healthcare in the United States by approximately 70%, 70. Right? And we can do that through a number of technologies. First of all, 40% of diagnoses, medical diagnoses today in the United States are wrong. So you've got a one in two chance approximately of getting a correct diagnosis. The use of artificial intelligence is being shown to improve the accuracy of diagnosis considerably in fields like you know, CAT scans, MRIs, X-rays, you know, um, oncology and so forth. So that's one area. 40% of the costs of the current healthcare system today are administrative costs. So we can use robotic process automation to improve or reduce those costs effectively down to zero over time. Then you have gene therapy, which can eliminate diseases from the genome, we shift to a data-based approach in respect to health maintenance instead of um, you know, analyzing or diagnosing symptoms and then uh, addressing them. So all of those things together dramatically reduce the cost of healthcare. So if now we can produce a healthcare system that's 30% of the cost of the existing system, we can give healthcare to everyone for free at a fraction of the cost of today's system. There shouldn't really be a political argument over that once the costs are aligned, because the biggest um, argument today for universal healthcare is who's going to pay for it. But Broadly, most Americans agree that healthcare should be available to all of the population at low cost or free. So that's a that's a really good example of where um, automation is dramatically going to improve the situation. But at the same time, the intent of AI has always been to eliminate humans from the workforce. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, we can talk about solving the biggest problems of, uh, you know, the, the biggest questions in the universe through super intelligent AIs. But that's not why we create. We've dreamed about creating robots and automation. We've dreamed about that um, to have these machines or algorithms that serve humanity and make our life uh, more prosperous, right? And and you know, so that we don't have to work. So that that's the design of AI or the core intent. So you get to a point at some point where it's going to um, uncorrelate or unhinge labor participation from classic supply and demand economics, where demand in the market or in the economy is no longer generating jobs for humans. And that is something that dramatically it changes the whole game. You know, it changes the role of work in society, changes the way we think about economics, it changes the way we think about wealth. And, and that is obviously going to take a few decades to really, you know, perhaps 100 years to really sort of change our psyche and change the way we grapple with that. But that is, uh, you know, unashamedly the intent of AI. Mm. Wow. That's a lot to take in. So you talk about AI a lot in the book and frequently I find the caveat or the parenthesis that says, but AI can also um, replicate existing bias, for instance, right. or AI isn't necessarily a tool that only does good. Um, it can also do bad. Um, and this is obviously a huge topic of conversation um, right now. 
and in the, you know, in the, in the Luddistan version of how we might end up, you talk about a rejection of technology and AI and science as being um, what leads us to essentially not make further progress. Is there a version where, yes, we accept technology and AI and science, but we recognize the need to put limits on it? Um, you know, how, how, how are we going to ensure that AI is for good, given that when AI is for bad, it can be very, very bad? Yes. Well, this really comes back to sort of framing ethics and regulations around the use of AI. Um, and we argue that this, again, is not something that should be a national policy. It sh certainly should not be the purview, for example, of the, the bank or financial regulators alone. It, it, AI is a national pursuit and a national problem in terms of its uh, um, the way it impacts society. And so Artificial intelligence needs to be regulated at a nation level at a minimum, and there should probably be regulatory alliances globally in respect to the use of AI because AI, you know, we are already using Chinese AIs in our everyday life when we use certain apps like TikTok as an example. Um, you know, people around the world are using US AIs with Facebook as an example. And so we need, really need to think about regulation of AI and those standards globally. Um, and that's sort of a key element to the safe um, delivery of artificial intelligence. When you don't have that regulation, you are going to get accentuation of inequality, which is the key problem we're trying to address, one of the key problems we're trying to address in the book. Um, now, you know, where we talk about the Luddistan scenario and part of the reason for rejection of technology is sort of a political view that humans must remain in the workforce because that's the only way a living wage can be produced. Whereas, you know, this is why many entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and others talk about the fact that universal basic income is inevitable if we have highly automated societies because people won't be working. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the points of rejection of artificial intelligence may, well, we don't want to pay people a UBI. Right, right. That's that's politically untenable. It's something we can't agree to, um, and so we have to keep humans in the workforce as a result of that. So maybe we restrict the um, the reduction of people that can be displaced by AI, or maybe we force companies to pay a tax on AI for job programs that create new new jobs. The only potential sort of real industry, uh, growth industry that we see out over the next 20 to 30 years that could um, replace the jobs lost by AI, ironically, is climate. Right? Um, you know, building seawall defences yep. around um, New York and Miami and Toronto and Shanghai and, you know, Guangzhou, um, you know, carbon sequestration and extraction technologies, climate resilience for our infrastructure so that, you know, our subways don't get flooded, our electrical grids don't uh, fall apart. You know, um, this is going to be a massive employment opportunity in the future. And so the way we tackle that in the book is we say, well, let's tie all this together. And, you know, if you want universal basic income, why not um, put a requirement to do two years of national service on these types of climate mitigation programs, as an example, and then you can qualify for UBI, because we're factoring in that AI can produce so many advantages into the system, regulated AI, that um, we will accept the, uh, the, the unemployment effects that come with it. 
So, you know, one of the things I love about this book and I love about you, Brett, is that you've always been someone who has been trying to connect the dots across trends, across uh, markets, across ideas, across geographies. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons why uh, we get along so well is because you know that I also believe that everything is connected. Uh, and uh, that if we fail to see those interconnections and create uh, cooperation and governance structures to encourage them, we're going to miss it. We're not going to be able to see people in their full complexity um, and ultimately uh, make things better. I wonder sometimes how much of the fact that you're an Aussie um, and have traveled the world influences your thinking in this way. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more yeah. about that. I think I think a lot. You know, I mean, I've lived around the world. Um, you know, I obviously was born in Australia, but fairly early got the travel bug. My dad had a travel agency for a period of time. And so that obviously helped. But I left Australia in 99. I lived in Hong Kong for six years. I then moved to Dubai. And now I've been in the US about 11 years. And I'm in the process of moving to Thailand right now. And so I am unashamedly a citizen of the world um, and in that I don't see you know I, like you know I don't see the, a concept of the greatest country in the world you know as an example I you know Australians say that Australians for many years have called themselves the lucky country Americans say this is the greatest country in the world I, I don't believe that I, I believe there are um, fantastic and um, you know incredible uh, elements in each society that you go to um, and so I see the world as you know, collective form of humanity. You can look at the world from outer space. You don't see national borders. And the argument we put in the book is if you actually look at um, past economic successes or when we've made advances as a species, we do so um, much more rapidly when we work together rather than when we compete against each other. And so the Human Genome Project is an example of that, the Apollo Project in the 1960s and 70s, um, you know, the Great Wall of China, you know, even, even the, the World Wars, you know, particularly the Second World War, massive technological advancements made because, you know, on each side, the economies were were focused very specifically on advancements to uh, attack that problem. So when, when you look at the periods of time humanity has made the greatest advancements, it's when we work together. So the, the again, when we look at the failures of the current system, part of that is that, you know, the system is built to create competition competition at an individual level, at a corporation level, at a market level, nation against nation, tribe against tribe. And ultimately that is uh, cutting off our nose to spite our face. It's, it's inefficient as from resource allocation, it creates uh, false scarcity, it creates a, a, a division and animosity. And all of those things are counterproductive to the best outcomes possible for the species. And so that's philosophically why I think, you know, collectivism, particularly with problems like climate, 
We cannot solve that at a local government level. There's no such thing as a national climate change policy that's going to work because if the next nation next door doesn't have the same policy, then it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We can't solve these problems. The problems of this scale, like AI, role of work, uh, you know, climate, we cannot solve these as individual nations. We have to do this collectively. And the reality is, you know, all the borders, the money, it's all abstraction. At the end of the day, we're brothers and sisters on this planet as a species together. And if our species is going to survive, we have to learn to collaborate and work together more effectively. And that, that's that's my personal belief. And that's my mission, you know, in mm. producing this book, right? So we've known each other now for probably a decade. Um, and when we first got to know each other, and for much of that time, you have been known as really a, a, a tech enthusiast, and specifically a fintech enthusiast. Um, I think it was your first book. Your first book was Breaking Banks. Well, Bank 2.0, um, actually. And that, but... Oh, first one was Bank 2.0? Yeah. Um, Breaking Banks is the name of your podcast. Correct. Um, and um, you've published and was, Bank And was my third book, yeah. yeah. Right, so, and your yeah. third book, and Bank... 4.0. And right. right. And, you know, you were the guy they put on stage at conferences, uh, at banking conferences to say, no banks, um, you know, you're yesterday's news. Uh, and uh, there's something new here that is better um, and is that represents the future. Where did that come from? Um, you're not a technologist by training, per se. Um well, so say say more. I, I my first job, my start of my career was as a coder, a programmer. So yeah, I um I hark back to being a, a technologist. Um, but in in reality, I was probably a frustrated science fiction author. You know? Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, but one of the things that sort of happened early in my career was I found I had a fairly unique skill or a rare skill back in those days, which was the ability to communicate technology to business people and the average person and the ability to communicate business needs or outcomes to technology people and to sort of bring those two uh, groups of people together. Um, and so that has served me very well from a career perspective. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the first book, ironically, was an outcome of the the last financial crisis because hmm. I I had a um, a digital transformation business that I was running a strategic consulting business I'd been uh, headed up Deloitte's business practice uh, back in the dot com era and then I worked for a digital ad agency a company called Motor Media one of the early ad agencies um, and then sort of went independent but then the financial crisis hit. And I had a couple of businesses. I had a financial services training business where we were um, putting people through training courses on risk compliance, you know, e-commerce, those sort of things, um, and, uh, you know, private banking, wealth management. Um, and that business sort of collapsed overnight. We went from $5 million in revenue to 300000 in revenue in a mm. single year because of the financial crisis. Everyone cut their training budgets. So I took a couple of years off to write Bank 2.0 because at the time I'd been spending 
you know, a decade in the trenches trying to get internet banking um, transformation happening in many of the major banks, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Citibank, et cetera, working with them on sort of global.com strategy and just running into this wall of apathy, you know, no, digital's never going to change. It's never going to impact us. And I realised there was probably hundreds of thousands of guys like me facing that same frustration. And so I, I saw a niche to write a book about how that, you know, helping people understand how that change was going to pan out. Um, so again, the sort of futurist piece coming in there, a bit of sci-fi, um, and uh, then you know some sort of realistic approaches in terms of you know how those that transformation could could work. Um, and of course, uh, the the rest is history, as they say. That launched my career as a speaker and a, a thought leader yeah. in the space. It led to the creation of Movin, the first mobile challenger bank in the world. It led to you know the the radio show in 2013, Breaking Banks. Around the time Breaking Bad was popular, so you see where the name came from. Um, and uh, that's been running for eight years. Um, but increasingly, um, I've been feeling like the scope is not big enough. That yeah, I've solved the. I've I've had a good dialogue and discourse in the banking space, and I feel like I've really added value to that conversation. And I've certainly made some big bets, and uh, you know, in terms of predictions that have um, you know, particularly since the pandemic, have really um, you know been shown to to be accurate. But um, you know, there's much bigger problems than fixing the banking system, and ultimately. I think the way my brain works, I'm very logic oriented. I'm very problem solving, problem solving oriented in terms of the way my brain functions. And I keep seeing ways to sort of connect the dots and fix some of these problems that, you know, that are argued about incessantly in the media and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so I'm just trying to figure out how do I help other people to see these connections and how we can come together on these issues rather than sort of remain divided and, you know, contentious. And, and if, if I can achieve even part of that um, and be part of the solution, then that will be uh, incredibly fulfilling. But um, I guess part of it is also wanting to leave a mark, make a dent in the universe, you know, make a difference. Yeah. I know that you, um, are focused on much loftier things than banking. Um, but I do want to keep you there for just a minute. Sure. Um, so you mentioned Movin, uh, the company that you launched. Gosh, that's probably when I first met you. Um, right. uh, so August which, 2010 was was officially the day the domain reg was registered. But 2011 was when sort of we went public with Movin. So yeah. it would have been about that time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, I think it's fair to say that in a way, Movin was ahead of its time. Um, yes. Uh, and that, that was I a think, bit of a problem as well, but we can discuss well, that another right. time. But that in a way, Movin was a, was a neobank before neobanks existed. Correct. Uh, but it really was, I think, an approach to engage, how to engage people about their money. Uh uh, and creating an experience that went beyond, you know, standard products and services that we think about in banking. And so much has happened, right, since 2011 oh, when yeah. you uh, launched that company. Uh, and in particular, the pandemic, as, as everyone says, right, uh, has 
has sped up digital adoption. You know, we, some people say, oh, in six months, we got where we would have been in six years. And in fact, today, moving as a SaaS business, essentially helping banks um, improve their digital experience uh, for their customers. And so I wonder what you think about this sort of historic and for some people still a very much tangible divide between incumbents and fintechs at a time when the distinction increasingly um, means nothing because everyone is going to be a digital company. I I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we, we did a lot of firsts for movement, you know, we had the, the, we, we were the first people to talk about financial wellness as a core element of a bank account, as an example, way beyond, you know, years before anyone else. Um, We were the first mobile banking app that allowed you to sign up for a bank account or a debit card in the app. Um, We were the first to do contactless payments. We had a sticker you could stick on the back of your phone before Apple even had uh, NFC technology in their phone, as an example. Um, you know, the real-time receding experience, all, all of that was sort of paving the way for the sort of experiences we have today. Um, but the concept really was about having a smart bank account that helped you you save money. Now, systemically, the other issue here is that, you know, we were sort of at, um, abstracting the product sets of banking and moving towards more a utilitarian view of banking, banking embedded in your world that solved your problems when and where you need it. So it's only just now we're really starting to see that sort of happen. Um, You know, we see buy now, pay later, built into purchase experiences and things like that. Savings behavior being emphasized by various uh, tools. You know, you've got Digit, Acorns, Yuibao in China on the Alipay wallet, et cetera. Um, more behaviorally based savings than it is sort of account based savings. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's been really incredible to sort of see that that growth. For us, we were just too early in the process. I mean, if you think about it, in 2014, we had a quarter of a million customers on the app. Um, you know, we were clearly on trajectory to become a really interesting challenger bank, and we just couldn't raise money. We couldn't raise financing because people were just like, we just don't know if challenger banks are going to work, right? Now that sort of seems like a ridiculous conversation to have, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, like we, I remember going in and pitching to Andreessen Horowitz uh, back in like 2012 with Alex Sion. And, you know, we were calling ourselves the Facebook of banking. Right. Um, and uh, it was a really interesting conversation that showed how much the, the venture capital world had to understand because um, they were really interested in the concept. But they said, we want to see, you know, we want a business like this that can scale up to like the social media you know, businesses. We want we want a, a digital bank that can have a billion customers. Right, well, who doesn't, right? Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's what <laughs> we want to do. But we have to solve the problem of capital adequacy, I said. And and the answer from the the um, you know, venture capitalist Andreessen Horowitz was, can what's capital adequacy? Can you explain right. it? You know, and so like no concept of how banking is regulated and so forth. So we've obviously come a long way. You know, uh, second quarter of this year is the largest ever fintech funding um, you know quarter we've seen in history. We are seeing um, you know N26 is now the second. Uh, 
by market value, second largest bank in the German market. Their growth has had to be capped because they're growing too quickly. So they can only acquire 70,000 new customers a month right now. All of the fastest growing financial institutions in the world are growing at digital scale. And that is changing market share. It's going to, it's going to materially change the financial services system in terms of its makeup, the mix of tech giants, fintechs, tech fins, and, and obviously incumbents. And so if you're not not technology, technologically enabled as a bank to work in that ecosystem, you're just going to be squeezed out as a, as a matter of market share changes. But it's more than that. It's the fact that technology is embedding banking in our world and it's changing the it's changing banking to being experiential rather than being a business with products you get through mm -hmm. a bank, you know? And so, um, you know, like there's no place for a credit card in this future world, but there is place for credit contextually. You know, for example, you know, the reason credit cards are going to disappear are, are multi fold you know one, one plastic's going to disappear secondly you know the whole airline miles and reward programs and cash back that's not as important as just helping people save money um, and third you know especially after the pandemic um, you know so uh, thirdly you know you, you're not going to have to pre-apply for these things it's going to be instantaneous so you know for all of those reasons as a sort of reshaping the way banking sits in society and I um, I I Sometimes I'm amazed. I've had so many arguments and debates and challenges to this over the years. But, you know, my biggest problem often is I can't understand why other people can't see it the same way. And I guess it's just, <laughs> again, it's the way my brain works potentially. But when, when you're a futurist, one of the things that sort of happens at some point is because you're always thinking about the future and what technologies can get us to the future, because the one thing futurists all want is to get to the future as fast as possible, right? So you start thinking of the world in that way. And you sort of forget about sometimes about the sort of problems of actually you know, transitioning through that phase yep. of implementing those technologies and all the, the seismic implications that occur. For example, the fact that in the United States uh, that, um, you know, by 2025, we will probably be at half the level of branches we had pre the global financial crisis. We'll probably be half the banks that we had prior to 2000, you know? And so those are massive changes in the way we think about employment and the way economies function and things like that. And that's happening in every single industry at the moment as a result of injection of technology, the internet, AI, and et cetera. So it's a, it is a very disruptive, challenging time. You know? And it's happening in a compressed time frame. Yes, we've had major crises or issues like this before, the Industrial Revolution. But the Industrial Revolution really took like 100, 150 years to you know, um, make those changes to society. We're having this happen in the space of 20 or 30 years in many cases. You know, and so it, it, it's a very different uh, proposition. Yeah. So I want to pick up on something you said just a minute or two ago. You talked when you were talking about credit cards and the demise of the actual card itself. You talked about how this whole uh, earning earning credit and ordering airline miles based on spend, you know, that's going to go away because at the end of the day, that's not really about helping people. Right. And I want to I want to use that and use the experience of the fintech revolution over this last decade or so to think about 
the likelihood of and the challenges of um, achieving techno-socialism. Because when I hear you talk about the airline miles and, oh, but that's not really helping people, I think, well, yeah, but the way our economy and our, our, our political economy works today, frankly, is that there's more money to be made from the people who already have it. And I don't see any reason why, even if the form factor of a credit card goes away, I don't see any reason why we won't still be leveraging those kinds of incentives and rewards to get people to spend or to do what we want them to do. And I could reflect, I could say the same thing about much of what we've seen in fintech, that it's improved convenience, particularly for people who, right, reduced, particularly for people who already have money. But has it really lived up to the whole promise of, oh, we're going to change the world. We're going to solve real problems for people, um, especially people who are among the have-nots. So help me reflect on the experience of the last 10 years with fintech and what that tells us about what needs to be different if we're going to get to techno-socialism. So, um, you know, obviously prior to the financial crisis, we had about half of the planet who were financially excluded. Um, We've made enormous progress on that. About 1.7 billion people have Mm. been financially included, um, you know, since then. So we've we've made progress. But getting the last mile, the last billion, you know, billion and a half people on board is a a challenge, clearly. Um, But that's where we are starting to see significant progress. We've often talked about, M-Pesa, as an example, enabling yeah. people in Kenya to get access to financial services. But probably a couple of more recent better examples are the two largest challenger banks in the world. We bank out of Shenzhen in China and New Bank out of Latin, Latin America, um, both of which have about two-thirds of their customers, uh, customers that have uh, banked for the first time. And they're able to do that because of the economies of scale of technology and the the lower operational costs and the lower acquisition costs of those customers. But they're also able to do that because digital inclusion is working. People are getting access to the internet finally and smartphones or rich feature phones that they can afford to use these these systems on. You know, we have new smartphones, uh, basic smartphones being sold in India today for about $10 a piece. So if we can work out the internet problem, you know, using technologies like the Internet Constellation, Starlink, and um, I forgot uh, um, Amazon's uh, name right now for this, their, start, their cost constellation, and things like mesh networking technology and improving access to um, you know, cellular data. In, in theory, we think we can get to about 98% of uh, people included digitally by the end of this decade. Um, and then the only restriction that remains is no longer accessibility, but really KYC and identity issues. And so when you see the reason India has been able to uh, dramatically improve financial inclusion, it comes to the national identity scheme and the Aadhaar card. And we are going to need digital identity infrastructure anyway for the, all of these digital services, healthcare, education, you know, transportation, right. banking that we're going to need in the 21st century. We'll need, and the current identity infrastructure, you know, is, is, is exclusionary. Um, you know, we see it for voting rights in the United States, but we see it for banking as well. It, you know, if you look at the, the households that are excluded in the United States, a large percentage of them don't have driver's license or passports, as an example. And so um, creating a, 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 a national digital identity schema is, is sort of really critical for, for that moving forward. 
you know, what strikes me though, is the biggest difference in the examples that you gave China, India, Latin America, et cetera, is that those are mostly still developing countries that, um, that are still growing their middle class. Right. Um, when you think about the United States, parts of Europe, et cetera, we largely don't have those problems. And yet, right, walk down the street in San Francisco or in my own neighborhood in Chicago, right, people sleeping on the streets and on and on and on. Uh, and therein lies the biggest challenge, I think, uh, is once you've gotten past um, the biggest opportunities for growth, right, uh, newly policy. included people, right, then what? Uh, yeah. What drives the what drives the change? Um, the, well, you know, I do think economics here can be a strong argument. So we take the homelessness situation. You know, the data we we put in the book around this is is quite shocking, really. The average policing and and you know um, social cost to a homeless person on the streets of San Francisco is about thirty five thousand dollars a year. It is demonstrably much cheaper to put people in, um, you know government subsidized housing than it is um, you know we can 3d print a, a new home today for three or four thousand dollars now the administrative costs around that are probably going to result in you know a, a, a obviously much greater cost but there's very strong economic incentive not to have people homeless not to have people sick uh, and so forth and, and that's where the automation comes in is that we, if mm. we can improve the application of technology then those decisions become very simple but it comes back to philosophy what's the economy for if the economy isn't there to look after the citizens what is it for and um you know that's ultimately what we have to ask but Technology can bring us this sustainable prosperity, can bring incredible wealth for economies. Then the only problem becomes wealth distribution. So when we talk about universal basic income as a mechanism, for example, and everyone says, who's going to pay for that? We show various ways that that could be paid for. Um, you know, and one of the key areas is incredible wealth that these corporations will um, grow because of the use of artificial intelligence. And then it comes back to, um, you know, uh, smart resource allocation. You know, if we look at Apple as a company today, you know, they're, they're an incredible company producing incredible products, but could you say they're making the world a better place? Well, you know, they're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 and sustainable products and all of that, but they have $300 billion of cash reserves. That's more than the foreign reserves of Australia as a nation. Um, and you could argue that that wealth is not really working for the economy. It works for Apple. They may invest in some startups and acquire some startups and so forth, but that wealth is not being deployed to generate more opportunities or, um, you know, uh, improve the quality of life of, of the average American, as an example, or global citizens. And the same works for the incredible wealth that's captured by billionaires today. Now, one of the things we toyed with in the book is, should there be a natural cap on the amount of wealth that an individual should have in the system? We decided not to put that in the book, even though we predict in chapter three of the book that Elon Musk will be the world's first trillionaire, um, you know, or and potentially Jack Maher and um, you know Bezos, obviously up there as well. But um, when we we look at that, you say, well, is that an efficient way to use that capital? Um, and billionaires might argue it is, but at the end of the day, um, 
when you have these basic needs for citizens, healthcare, access to education, access to housing not being met, then it is a resource allocation issue where we need to refine the system. Brett, building the future is going to be hard, messy, scary. Uh, and I am I am really glad that uh, to know that uh, we're going to have someone with your heart and your sensibilities um, helping build it. So, Brett, thank you for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you very much, Jen, and um, join me. It's a mission for all of us. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.